0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas,
1: articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. What can values and desires around the world tell us about the nature of morality? To help us discuss moral relativity, we're joined this week by Joel Robbins, author of Becoming Sinners and Professor of Social Anthropology at the University of Cambridge.
2: There's no rational way to decide universally and in the abstract which one you should choose. Should you choose justice? Should you choose mercy? It may be that in particular situations, you know what you want to choose. But if you were setting up a society, there's no rational way to say, yes, we're always going to put liberty ahead of equality or always justice ahead of mercy, etc., etc.
1: If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter and head over to our website, iai.tv. If you enjoy our podcast, you'll love Philosophy Talk, a radio show, podcast, and online community created by our friends at Stanford University. Head over to philosophytalk.org to check it out. Back now to Joel Robbins.
2: Different cultures promote different ideas about what counts as really high-level goods, as what a society should really strive for. Uganda people think a good society is one in which everybody has lots of opportunities to take part in relationships of hierarchical interdependence between patrons and clients, that that feels like a good and secure life there. The Eurotman people in Papua New Guinea define the good life as one in which people have as many relationships with other people as they can, where both sides treat each other as equals. Euro-Americans, Western culture, roughly speaking, tend to value a world in which individuals are free to become who they choose to be unencumbered by personal, economic or political relationships that would prevent them from exercising this freedom. But these are just three examples. I could have given you other examples of different versions of the good, but I really just want to establish that if you look across cultures, you can see that people are defining the good in different ways. What should these differences mean for our moral lives? What should these kind of differences mean for the lives of people who do learn about them. Or why should you want to learn about them? What's in it for your own moral life? For a good part of the 20th century, people would link this kind of knowledge of cultural differences to their own moral, moral um, lives by taking the position of relativism. Okay? They would say that a good person is one who recognizes that ideas and ways of behaving and notions of morality are different across cultures. And a good person is one who trains themselves to understand these differences and therefore makes themselves tolerant of them. A good person is the kind of person who could look at the Zande saying that the granary collapsed on the person underneath it because the person underneath it had been attacked by a witch and could realize that that's a perfectly reasonable way of thinking in Zande in the Zande world, and that it, it, can le- it can give you a way of managing death that's very productive in that world and therefore you can be tolerant of those different ideas. That was this notion of relativism that you learned about other cultures so you could make yourself a more tolerable person. Okay. Of course As I also mentioned, relativism wasn't just about saying other people's ideas make sense in their own terms. It also said similar things about their moral understandings. It said you can't judge other people's moral understandings and judgments on the terms of your own culture's moral ideas, right? So for instance, let's take a society in which marriages link families, and families are the key building blocks of the political world, and therefore marriages are major political events in societies that are like that, and there are many of them around the world, marriages tend to be arranged by adults, not by the younger people getting married. And that's thought to be morally appropriate. Indeed it's thought to be morally wrong and selfish for young people to marry on the basis of their own feelings. Marriage is so important to the political structure it has to be managed By the parental generation, that's morally right. It would be immoral for people just to act on their own feelings, which can be passing, after all, as we know, by the divorce rate. Okay? The argument from a relativist would argue that only when you judge arranged marriages from the point of view of a culture that puts individuals and their free choices first, the only if you judge arranged marriages from the point of view of a culture where the highest good is individuals getting to make their own choices for themselves, would you judge arranged marriages in that other culture as morally bad? In fact, you might call them, as they're often called in England, forced marriages, right? A relativist would say, morally, you shouldn't do that. You are judging them from the point of view of your own cultural understandings. You should take the time to learn why they make sense for the people who do them, okay? On the basis of arguments like that, moral relativists promoted the idea that tolerance was a key virtue. You might want to study anthropology, you might want to learn about other cultures so that you could become a more tolerant person. That would be a good moral project. That is a good moral project. Fewer and fewer people these days are attracted to this kind of full-blown relativism. There's been a kind of hardening of moral attitudes at least at their edges, you know. at least when it comes to looking at people from other cultures. More and more these days, people, even educated people, even some anthropologists, want to be able to identify and condemn practices they think are evil, even if they have to make those judgments that a practice is bad across cultural boundaries. More and more people want to be able to morally judge people living in societies other than their own. They're not willing to make the relativist... Well, there's a philosopher named Jan, John Cook who said that one of the things about moral relativism was it forced you into a position of what he called moral recusal. I can't judge them. I recuse myself because it's not my culture. Fewer and fewer people are willing to accept the demand for moral recusal that comes with being a relativist. So the question I want to focus on answering in the rest of my talk today is this. Okay, Given that many people these days don't want to be relativists anymore. They want to be able to judge across cultures. They want to be able to say that some things are evil and should be stopped, even if it's across a cultural boundary. Given that people don't want to be relativists, what work is left for knowledge of cultural differences to do in our own moral lives? Is there a way we can make use of moral differences, not just to become tolerant of everything, but to improve ourselves morally in some other way? So that's the question I want to answer. If we don't want to be relativists, for the sake of argument, a lot of people don't want to be, so let's say for the sake of argument, we don't want to just tolerate everything, what work can moral differences do for our own moral development? And I think that's good for anthropology too, because I should say with the decline of relativism, anthropology has become a little less popular, so for what it's worth, I think it's a key project for anthropology now too to find new moral uses for cultural difference, and that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. Okay. In working to, okay, so what I want to argue is that, and I'm going to be abstract for a minute, but this will get concrete very quickly, is that even if a broad-based cultural relativism doesn't work for people anymore, it doesn't give moral difference a role to play in our lives anymore that people are attracted to, I still think that the study of the various ways cultures define the good can help us find a role for cross-cultural differences in our moral life. Okay. Even if we don't want to be full-blown relativists and say we're just going to tolerate anything that makes sense to other people, I think that studying the ways people define the good still can help us develop our own moral understandings. And in, in working to substantiate that point, I'm going to suggest two different ways that a focus on different notions of the good is not the same thing as relativism. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to convince you that looking at the kind of differences I looked at in the first half between different versions of the good isn't quite the same thing as what relativists used to be up to. And that it's for this reason, I think, that focusing on differences in in definitions of the good across cultures can help us think about how cultural differences can matter for our own lives. So first, I want to note a crucial way in which a focus on cultural understandings of the goods leads us to dwell on very different kinds of differences than the relativists dealt with. That's my first point. We could call that an empirical point. I'm going to say that the differences that we focus on, the differences that are out there in the world that we choose to focus on, are going to be different if we see ourselves as doing a comparative study of the good across cultures as opposed to doing a relativist study just of cultural difference in general. So that's the first point. We're going to look at different things. But then I also want to draw on a philosophical position known as value pluralism to suggest why a focus on the good can can allow for a different use of data on moral difference than relativism did. So first I want to talk about the the kinds of Differences in the world we're going to attend to if we focus on different definitions of the good. Then I'm going to make a philosophical argument and conclusion about why focusing on differences in the good is a different project than trying to become a tolerant relativist. Um, so first on to my point about the fact that the cross-cultural study of differences in the good is a little different than relativists. If you think about it, and probably some of you have done this yourself, when, when anthropologists, or philosophers, or people in their own everyday conversations want to make relativist arguments, what do they focus on in other cultures? Well, they tend to focus on things they find morally upsetting. They tend to focus on things they find pretty repugnant. When you're about to have, a, you know somebody's going to make a relativist argument when they say to you something like, well, I bet you think arranged marriage is bad. Or I bet you think ritual genital modification is bad. Or I bet you think infanticide is bad. Or there's a wonderful anthropological article a few years ago that actually started with the sentence, I bet you think child labor is bad. I knew I was in for a good article uh, when she started. with. But relativists always want to start you with something that you find morally repugnant. With something you basically find, as it were, Disgusting, and then their technique is to tell you enough about the culture it comes from that maybe you could appreciate why it makes moral sense in its own local cultural terms. Okay, So to play this relativist game, you've got to be focusing all the time on practices that your audience finds disagreeable, that they just spontaneously dislike. What that means is that the full range of cultural differences never really comes into focus in relativist conversations. At best, you'll get the practice that you find upsetting or disturbing. You know, we'll take infanticide, for example. And then you'll get the cultural ideas that make sense of it. But the focus really is on the practice that, that you don't like. The focus is very rarely on what those the societies define as the good that they're trying To reach, it is also true, and this is a slightly subtle point, but I'm only going to dwell on it for a minute. So don't worry if it if doesn't make a lot of sense. But when you when you make a relativist argument, you tend to focus precisely on practices and not ideas. The trick is to hold up a practice like, well, these people murder a lot of children at birth, murder is already a judgmental term, they, they end the lives of a lot of children at birth, that's infanticide, or they practice arranged marriage, or, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're focused on their practices, not on the goals and ideas that motivate them to do what they do. Okay? you don't study why they're motivated to do these practices when you're just trying to make a relative's argument. And that's a huge loss, because most people's practices only really make sense when they're embedded in versions of the good life. And I'm arguing that we should focus on those versions of the good life. So just take the practice of queuing in the UK, for example. right? Which I know is a very important part of of British culture. That's a practice. I could hold it up just as a practice, and in fact, in some places, people find that pretty exotic, right, that the British take it so seriously, right? But the point is to really understand why British people are so committed to the practice of queuing and why it's so important to do it right, you've got to know that it connects up with very important values about fairness, about people getting what they deserve, about playing by the rules, about punishing people who don't play by the rules and reporting people who do. So if you just focused on the practices, and says, isn't this weird British people queue up all the time? That, that looks immoral to us. You're missing out on the real story, which is the, the very important notions of fairness that that practice serves to put into play. Relativism tends to get obsessed just with the practices themselves. Like if you just talked about queuing and not fairness. At its best, It will tell you about a practice that repels you and then very quickly relate it to other aspects of the culture it occurs in to try to make it seem less repellent. But it won't dwell on what people in the culture think is most important. And what I'm trying to argue is that we would do better in making cultural differences um, relevant to our own moral lives if we didn't focus just on the practices but we focused on the models of the good that they were trying to realize, if we focused on the fairness and not the queuing. And in fact, usually if it's a high-level model of the good, it's realized by a lot of different practices. So probably to really understand queuing in British society, you'd also want to know about British ideas about the legal system, British ideas about the ways of choosing a government, you'd want to know about the school system, all those things tie into this idea of fairness. So relativism, as it, is, as it were, shines a light on the wrong level. It looks at the practices, but not the versions of good that they're trying to realize, not the world they're try- that those practices are trying to create. And so the first thing I would want to emphasize is that if we're going to study cultural differences in the good, we're going to study different kinds of materials than relativist study. We're going to study the kinds of Things that motivate people and not just the practices that we happen from our cultural point of view to find morally repugnant or morally challenging. To justify the claim that it's worth studying these kind of definitions of the good to help our own moral life, I'm going to switch tactics now and talk about a philosophical position that's called the position of value pluralism. And this is what I'm really suggesting is the outlook that could be a competitor for relativism. And in fact, it, is a, it was developed as a philosophical competitor for rel- to relativism, and that I think it would underlie making the study of cultural differences in definitions a good, a moral project of our own. So let me tell you a little bit about value pluralism. Unlike relativism, value pluralists don't argue that whatever people do is morally allowable as long as it's allowable in their own cultural terms. That is the relativist position, right? If if it's okay in your culture to do X, then it's okay for you. Value pluralism, that's not its argument. It argues something very different. A value pluralist argument really at its heart says two things. The first thing it says is that there are a number of different equally legitimate definitions of high-level goods or values that a society might accept. In the real world, there are men, There, maybe not millions, but there are, there's more than one high-level definition of the good that a society might adopt. Each of these high-level definitions of the good, which pluralists call values, are acceptable because they can all support human flourishing. Okay? If you happen to adopt a value that doesn't support human flourishing, then a value pluralist will say, you know, that's, that's not a good definition of the good. The, the, the example people love to use is the example of the Shakers, a small religious group um, formerly in the United States who were so committed to the idea that the good was being sexually pure that people weren't allowed to have any sexual relations at all. And the religion died out, as you might imagine, because they didn 't reproduce all value flourish say you know what that's just it 's a model of the good, it is, but it, it doesn 't support human flourishing. they would say right so there are some things unlike relativists they're gonna they 're going to reject because they don 't support human flourishing, but they do say in the real world there 's more than one kind of value, more than one definition of the good, that can support human flourishing so that 's their first point. their second point is that these different definitions of the good, these different values, often conflict with one another, such that you can't realize all of them or practice all of them to the same extent and live a sustainable, meaningful life. So there are a lot of different values that are possible in the world that support human flourishing and that are acceptable, but no one society, no one person can do all of them because they actually conflict with each other most of the famous value pluralists were also very uh, politically committed to to philosophies of of liberalism. The two most famous are probably the sociologist Max Weber and the political philosopher and intellectual historian Isaiah Berlin. They came from the liberal tradition, so the kinds of values they talk about that conflict with each other are very recognizable ones in, in the liberal tradition, such as liberty and equality. You can be all for liberty, all for the right of the freedom of people to choose to be who they are and to become who they are and to get the rewards for what it is they do. But, and you could also be all for equality, which is that people should end up with the, same, with the same kind of outcomes and they should have the same kind of opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. But you can't actually do liberty and equality equally strongly at the same time. They're both good. say They both support flourishing lives. But you can't do both at once, or take another one. I mean, I'm hoping some of these, I'll go through a few so that hopefully some will be familiar. You can't equally be committed to justice and mercy at the same time, right? Both of those are good things. They both support human flourishing, but sometimes to be just is not to be merciful, and sometimes to be merciful is not to be just. Privacy and security is one that's become increasingly important in in a lot of contemporary cultures. Privacy is a good thing, supports a flourishing human life, but often to protect us from each other, the government can't give us, um, in order to make us secure, they can't give us complete privacy. Artistic goals are really, really good, but so are economic goals, and you can't focus on both at the same time, et cetera, et cetera, and each of these pairs both sides represent really viable, high-level goods. This is what the value pluralist says. There's no rational way to decide universally and in the abstract which one you should choose. Should you choose justice? Should you choose mercy? It may be that in particular situations you know what you want to choose, but if you were setting up a society, there's no rational way to say, yes, we're always going to put liberty ahead of equality or always justice ahead of mercy, etc., etc. and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. You can't prioritize them both to the same extent because they just don't work together perfectly. So that's what Value Plurists are saying. There's a, quite a few viable high-level goods in the world, but they don't all work together very well. So every person um, and every society is going to have to choose which of them to prioritize. And that's hard. It's hard because both sides of these kinds of choices are good. So in choosing one kind of good, say, I want to focus on liberty, you're going to lose out on another kind of good, like equality. Isaiah Berlin famously said, these are tragic choices. They're tragic for societies. They're tragic for individuals, because while you choose to get the most of good A, you are definitely losing out on something else that is also good. You can't not lose somehow, and that's why it's a tragic choice. You could choose freedom as your highest value, and if you did that, you might be able to walk into the airport and go straight to the plane without going through security. That would be real freedom, right? If you travel at all, that would feel very good. You might be able to shut down all the CCTV cameras that are everywhere, right? If you wanted freedom, to be your highest good. But if you did that, you would certainly lose out on security, which is also something you think is good. Or you could choose liberty as your very highest value, and you could give everyone the maximum chance to become whoever they choose to be. Okay, but you know that if you do that, you're going to give up on making everybody equal, because some people are going to achieve more than others. Some people are going to start out with advantages other people don't have. So you can't choose all of them equally, you're going to have to make a tragic choice. You're going to have to choose one good and lose out on another one. Max Weber, even a little more poetically than Berlin, who called them tragic choices, put it that these high-level values that are really viable, that really support human flourishing but don't work together, are like warring gods. They're all warring gods who are fighting for our attention, and we have to choose which of them we're going to serve. So for, for Value Pluralists, like Berlin and Weber, life is full of hard choices. There's more than one legitimate version of the good life that you could pursue, and that your culture could pursue, but every person in every culture has to choose one of them to stand behind. You can't choose them all, because they don't work together, okay? Once we realize, along with the Value Pluralists, that it's an inherent part of human life that we have to make choices between equally good but conflicting values. That is, we have to make these kinds of choices if we want to have a meaningful moral life. Then we're ready to return to my main question, which is what, what, what can cultural differences and definitions of the good mean for your own moral practice, right? Because maybe it's obvious where I'm going with this now, right? My culture, your culture, anybody's culture, introduces us only to some genuinely good values that exist in the world okay, and that can support human flourishing. Our culture introduces us to some definitions of the good, those definitions that our tradition has chosen to focus on and to develop. But at the same time, every culture, your culture, my culture, the Rotman culture, Buganda culture, right, also directs our attention away from what are, in empirical terms, equally good values that other traditions focus on. When we follow our own culture's primary values, which I think most of us do most of the time, but that's, a, that's an anthropological point we could debate, but when we follow our own culture's Primary values, we forego the chance to make the kinds of difficult decisions between all the viable high-level values that really exist. We forego the chance to really examine all the kinds of definitions of the good that support human flourishing and make a conscious, responsible choice between them. Right? We actually go through our life embedded in our own culture not really making the tragic choices that are out there in the world. This is the value pluralist speaking. Not really choosing between the warring gods. We just focus on what our culture lays down. But at least according to Weber in Berlin and other value pluralists, to be a really morally responsible person, you should inform yourself about all the viable ways of living a good life and then make those hard choices. And this is where learning about cultural cultural different cultural definitions of the good could come into our moral lives. It could help us become more conscious of the options that are there, and it could help us make the choices from a more responsible position. To think about how this might work in concrete terms, let's go back to the high-level values I discussed from Buganda and the Erotman case in the first lecture for a minute, and contrast them with individualism again. That's what I was doing in the first lecture, and ask how this would work if we saw ourselves as having to make choices between these different high-level versions of the good. What would it mean for our moral lives to seriously entertain the Buganda value of creating a world of hierarchical interdependence, or the Eratman value of creating one filled with as many egalitarian relations as possible? What if we had to make a choice between realizing those values are our own. What, what would that tragic choice be like for us? In the interest of time, let me start to, an- I'm not really, I'm, well, you'll see. I can't really claim to be answering this question, but to explore this question, that's a good way out. Um, let, me be, <laughs> uh, let me simplify things a little bit. In fact, I already simplified them this way earlier on, but just very quickly. Eurotman and Buganda are really quite different because one values hierarchical relations, one values equal relations, but both of them value relations, right So let's simplify things for, for a moment and say, what if we looked at the value of having relationships of any kind versus the value of focusing on the individual and in their own relation and their own development and treating their relationships is very, very. Secondary. So what if we decided we were going to treat relationships as fundamental in the way Buganda and Eurotman both do? Not the individuals who are linked by relationships, they're not going to be our focus, but the relationships themselves, right? If, if, if we were to do this, we might have to consider, reconsider some of the, uh, um, the most profound efforts we, and here I include... Um, Europeans, few from the UK, Americans, etc., make to promote individual make to promote individualist definitions of the good, both in our own societies and around the world, which we do in the in, in the guise of individual hum, human rights. Right? We'd have to probably rethink that because probably Buganda people and Yoruban people would be much more comfortable talking about the rights of relationships to get what they need, to be served in the ways they should be served, rather than the rights of individuals, right? I mean, that was precisely what the Erotman magistrate was saying, look, I I wanna fix these relationships. I don't wanna figure out which individual to punish and which individual to reward, right? So we might have to rethink some of our commitments to things like human rights. We might, for example, also have to rethink, if we were gonna put relationships first, a decision that, like the one that was recently made in the United States, to ex- export um, refugees from our country, adult refugees, while, while keeping their children behind in the country because the, the parents had different rights as individuals than the children has as individuals. You all know about this case, right? Right. We might, Eurotman and Bugandan ideas about the good life that's based on relationships would so just never come up with that kind of solution to a problem. Now, of course, that case, it really is like you couldn't design a case to make individualist values look worse than that one did, right? I mean, I get that. Nobody really, I think, almost immediately as soon as it became public, almost nobody felt that was a legitimate thing to do. But it did make a certain individualist sense. The children had different rights than the parents, so, you know, deport the parents, but let the children stay. But maybe we could make the case a little bit harder for promoting individual rights over the rights of relationships by looking at a case from Papua New Guinea. So let me give you another case that be a little, take me a little more, it's a little more involved, but I think you'll get the point of what I mean about it, what it would mean to put these two different versions of the good up against each other and try to choose between them. So this is another case from Papua New Guinea, it's not from the Erotmen, it's from a group, another group in the highlands of, of, of New Guinea called the Wagi. And let me lay out the basic facts of this case as simply as I can. There was a man named Willingall, and Willingall had been protecting, he'd been sort of the bodyguard of another man from his father's clan. They both had, their, the, the, the two of them, their fathers were from the same clan, so Willingall had been a bodyguard of this other man, and Willingall had been killed while acting as a bodyguard of this other man. After he was killed, Willingall's mother's people, his mother's clan, sued, as it were, his father's clan, said, you didn't look after him, you didn't take care of him, you didn't protect his life, and we have an interest in his life, too, because he belongs to us, too, and therefore, you need to pay us something to fix our relationship with you. You've taken something from us by not protecting our child, now you have to give us what in New Guinea is often called compensation. So they demanded compensation for Willingall's death from his father's clan. The father's clan agreed that they needed to pay this compensation. It was a high compensation. It involved a lot of, of material goods. But it also involved sending um, a young woman of their group named Miriam, who was actually a daughter of the dead man, Willingall, in marriage to his mother's clan. Right? We gave you our son. You didn't look after him. He got killed. Now we want his daughter back to marry one of our boys, and that will fix the relationship between us. Okay. Miriam, the young woman involved at first agreed to this. Now note, she agreed to it on a very relational terms herself. She said, look, if I don't go in marriage, then one of my sisters or my cousins is going to have to go. So it's fine. I will be part of this compensation. I'll marry somebody from my father's mother's group. But later on, after she thought about it, she decided she actually didn't want to be married in this way. And her reasons for not wanting to be married in this way were a little more individual. She'd been taking a correspondence course and hoped that if she did well enough in this course, she could then attend secretarial school. And if she was successful at secretarial school, she could move to the city and find a way to, to escape her life as a rural Papua New Guinea person sort of living in a condition kind of like in Eurotman, where you're not part of the cash economy and where you work in your gardens, et cetera. And what she was saying was, look, I don't want to get married until I've done the most I can to realize my goals for myself. I've finished my correspondence course, hopefully gone to secretary of school, etc. Cetera, et cetera, I don't want to be married now. I have other things I'm working on. And to gain support for a position, she wrote to the national newspaper in Papua New Guinea asking for help. And the National Newspaper actually got pretty interested in her case and started to cover it very extensively in the headline writing kind of argot that she got swallowed up and she became the compo girl, the compensation girl, so if you want to Google this case, it's the compo girl case. Okay? They covered her plea that somebody help her not have to be used as part of this compensation payment to be married off to her father's mother's clan. As it happened, the Chief Justice of the National Court of Papua New Guinea, who didn't know any of these people, he lived far from where the Wagyu live, read about her case and decided that it actually was a very important case that should be heard in the national court. Okay, Because he thought it really tested human rights against local indigenous customs. And he was able to find an NGO that would provide a lawyer that would represent Miriam. And so her case was, in fact, heard in the national court, and the judge decided in her favor. He decided that she had a right not to be part of this marriage compensation payment, that she had a right not to have to marry her father's mother's people. Okay, As he put it, he acknowledged, the judge acknowledged in, in giving his ruling that there was a real difference in definitions of the good here. He said, look, I understand that for, for Miriam's people, the Wagyi people, he, as he wrote in his decision, there's a complex set of underlying social values associated with intertribal marriage in a complicated network of relationships. He realized that her being married in this way was part of preserving a whole net of relationships between her mother's people and her father's people. But still, he concluded that what he called the modern value of individual rights which is supported by the Papua New Guinea government on the national level, had to trump local customs in the national court. He said on a national court level, individual human rights have to, have to trump these local definitions of the good that have to do with preserving relationships and, and repairing them when, they, when they've been broken. It's an interesting case. None of the anthropologists who wrote about it, and quite a few anthropologists did, because it was pretty widely covered in the press, none of the anthropologists criticized the judge for his finding. But they spent a lot of time elaborating on the relational definition of the good that made sense of the, of the practice of compensation in the first place. They spent a lot of time on the part of his decision he set aside, which is why locally her marrying her mother's people would be a good thing, why it would help support this idea that the greatest good is to have as many relationships as you can and to keep them in good working order. They also suggested that it might not really be good for Miriam, in even in individual terms, to be torn out of the relational network in which she lived her life to that point. It's actually true, and you'd have to know more about New Guinea, but she was already taking a, she was taking a correspondence course because she'd already been put out of the school system. Right? She hadn't done well enough up to grade six to go on to the next level of schooling. And so her chances of actually realizing her goals of passing the, the correspondence course, being able to go to secretarial school, and then being able to work in the cities was not high. But it's really only in the cities and really only in working in the market economy that you could live as an individual in Papua New Guinea, right? Not as somebody embedded in all these relationships, that you could, you could only take care of yourself in Papua New Guinea if you had a much fancier education trajectory than Miriam had. So that, that was a concern of the anthropologist. But, but we don't actually know what happened to Miriam. I mean, after the case was over, the press, the press stopped paying attention to her, and I, at least I don't know what happened to her. And, and I don't really want to try to decide whether the judge's ruling was in her best interest. That's already a question that assumes that individuals and their lives are where we find the highest good, if that makes any sense. What I would rather do is... is, is um or why I've mentioned this case, is because I think it presents precisely the kinds of conflict between two high-level definitions of the good that value pluralism asks us all to think about, and asks us all to face and decide how we want to live our lives and the shape of the society we would like to live in. I think the first case I gave you really quickly, the the very recent US case of the children taken away from their parents who were deported from the country, would push us to think hard that maybe we should value relationships more than we do, right? Maybe the idea of breaking up families because the parents and children have different individual rights in a given case isn't worth it, that we should value relationships more highly than we currently do. That would make us more like New Guineans. On the other hand, the case, in the case of Miriam, our intuitions may go in a different direction. We may think, yes, it's good, that her individual rights were really vigorously protected against the rights of the relationship she was embedded in that would have had her marrying as part of this compensation payment. I'm just talking about our intuitions. That first case may make us say, wow, that, that kind of individualism is really bad. that would take parents away from their children. In Miriam's case, we actually might think, well, that individualism is pretty good. There's no real, there's no easy way to decide which of our intuitions in this regard we should attend to. That's why our choices are tragic, right? This is how we know we're faced then with what's like Weber's warring gods because the the choices are so hard. My claim is that we should study cultural differences and definitions of the highest good precisely so that we can find ourselves confronted with these kind of hard decisions more often than we do. And why should we do this? We shouldn't do it because anthropology or anybody's study of cultural definitions of the good is gonna tell us what the right choice is. That's not what we can be looking for, what, what the right definition of the good to have is. Why we should study these kind of conflicts between definitions of the good is so that we can expose ourselves so is so that we can sharpen our moral outlooks in ways that make them more responsive to the full range of definitions of the good that have been proven in various places to lead to flourishing human lives. The Wagi people that Miriam comes from live flourishing human lives. A lot of people in the United States live flourishing human lives. A lot of people in Buganda live flourishing human lives. We should confront ourselves with all of the versions of the good that support those lives, not because then we can always make the right decision, but because any decision we make will be better informed. Our decisions will still be tragic because that's the value pluralist notion is, you're going to choose one good, you're going to lose out on another good. That's their definition of tragedy. You can't have all the good in the world. So our decisions will still be tragic, but they'll be our own decisions. And hopefully if, if, we, if we've exposed ourselves to a lot of different definitions of the good, they might be better decisions overall for whatever context we find ourselves in. One of the founders of anthropology was a French scholar named Marcel Mauss, M-A-U-S-S. And he once wrote, I'm just gonna quote him here. I've quoted this before and somebody said, this is how you pray, isn't it? This is your prayer. So I'm gonna read you uh, Marcel Moss's quotation, which may also be my prayer. Uh, Marcel Moss says, quote, a civilization must be defined more by its deficiencies, its shortcomings, its refusals to borrow, than, from, than by what it has borrowed, the points it shares with others. I would interpret most as suggesting here that in the end, societies, and maybe even our own moral lives, may best be judged by the genuinely existing definitions of the good that we had access to by looking at the cultures of other people, but that we failed to really consider. We might be judged more by that, the versions of the good that we could have learned about but didn't, than we are by the definitions of the good that are firmly established in our own tradition and practices and that therefore come most easily to us. Myopia, when it comes to really existing definitions of the good or really existing values, would then be the gravest kind of mistake a society or person can make. So on this understanding, Learning about cultural differences and the definition of the good has a crucial role to play in our moral lives. For it's only by doing so that we can responsibly make the tragic choices that all people and all societies must make as they endeavour to create their own versions of the good life. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers. Look around. You can find cars like these on Autotrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Autotrader. Just you wait. Autotrader.